at the end of the day, the human being is making this AI. They are putting their own biases by making decisions about the data that is feeding in from the way that model is being built, from the ways that they are training and testing the algorithm. All of these little steps, there are thousands of different ways of doing it. And who makes that decision that this should be done this particular way? Even the best data scientists from one university, they can be biased just because of being trained by one professor. It can go in many different ways. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Steve Nouri is the founder of AI for Diversity, a non-profit global initiative that engages and educates diverse communities about AI to benefit society, and also founder and chair of Hackmakers, a global hackathon bringing hackers together to collaborate on impactful innovation challenges. And Steve is also a well-known AI influencer with over 740,000, I think, Steve, LinkedIn followers at last count. Steve, welcome to The Foil. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Can you share a little bit with us to begin with about your journey in AI? Thanks, Adam. It is very exciting to to be on social media. To be very honest, like I'm uh, I'm loving it. I'm getting a lot of suggestions, recommendations about what are the interesting topics, and I'm also learning a lot from my connections. But about myself, I started uh, you you know as a software engineer, as a dev um, around 20 years ago, writing code in Pascal and then Visual Basic and then .NET and um, doing a lot of SQL back in the days. And I guess that was the the, the chance for me to get uh, my hands dirty with data. Like the, that was very in- interesting and important to be able to make some reports. And um, yeah, I remember around maybe 12 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, I kind of got to know uh, data science as a, as a um, you know, new, um, new topic, which was, um, you know, uh, back then more the gray line between the statistics and, um, uh, you know, uh, programming and also people who are, uh, doing, uh, some, um, knowledge extraction and all of them together were kind of, uh, doing similar stuff by different, uh, titles. And from there. I did a master's in uh, data analytics and uh, uh, in recent years, I guess in the last five years, I've been uh, the head of data science in different sectors, uh, public, private, uh, specifically the last two uh, roles uh, at Data61 and ACS uh, in Australia. Uh, Right now I'm focusing on a lot of um, uh, different projects, mostly, I guess, uh, working with communities. This is right now my focus. And as you mentioned, um, Hackmakers and AI for Diversity are um, my passion right now. Uh, This is very important to, at least uh, from my perspective, to be able to bring diverse groups into the table, teaching them and um, making sure that they have the opportunity to learn from each other, network, and understand what are the opportunities. Like at the end of the day, the choice is uh, theirs if they want to pursue it as a career, but 
um, we just want to make sure that um, everyone has as a chance um, to do that. And um, as, as you mentioned, um, social media is also part of my focus. Uh, I started social media around uh, sharing very um, consistently on social media around uh, five, six years ago when I was a um, casual lecturer at university. And essentially I was um, sharing my, you know, re learning resources and sort of like uh, uh, things that are interesting for people to learn cheat sheets, these sort of stuff uh, with my own students. And I was like, okay, maybe that's something that people are interested on the rest of the, the whole world. And like literally by sharing the same stuff without putting a lot of effort, um, it, it became very popular. And at, back in the days, it was sort of like a little bit of um, mystery. What is AI and how to learn AI? I, I, I can feel that still there is a little bit of, you know, uh, mystery around it. It's so like a magic uh, sort of thing that you, you can, um, you, you, want, you want to know exactly how to learn what is the actual pathway. But even back then was even a more complex, but that was pretty much the start. And as, as I kind of um, evolved in my roles in, in academia and industry, I started sharing about uh, the latest innovations as well, because that is right now very important to me as I'm advising, you know, venture capitals and uh, startups. I would like to understand what is happening as the latest trend in the forefront of the industry. And that's essentially exciting for myself sharing it with the others, it seems that I have some similar, you know, uh, cohort of people excited about the same trends. Absolutely. It's so fascinating because when we first met, we met through the BOAB AI program. And when I learned, of course, that you had a growing, rapidly growing following um, of more than 740,000 people, I was really fascinated by that. And I'm curious, Steve, what are those people really interested in right now? What are the mega trends and what are people hungry to learn about? So to answer that, it's a uh, multiple fold. It's, uh, you would have people um, that are from different geographical location, different, um, you know, uh, seniority level, even different industries. It's not like uh, there are homogenous of, um, you know, similar interest and age uh, of people uh, that are in in my followers. Um, and I can see that as sometimes something that I totally would not expect will become viral and something that I really loved is just like nobody cares about. That is the reality of the word. I, I just love it. That's, that's all right. Um, um, I'm sharing my own passion, but, um, what I'm, I'm kind of seeing here, um, pretty much my own followers, they're like a pyramid, right? You would have down there a lot of uh, junior professionals. They are interested in AI and data science in general. Uh, they don't have a lot of experience, a lot of deep understanding of the tech. So once you share something deep in, um, you know, in the tech or something a little bit close to stats or the math behind the algorithms, then they would, um, you know, switch off and that would trigger some of the higher end of the spectrum, which might be, you know, uh, the uh, more senior data scientists, but then they, there aren't many of them out there. So um, that is always um, 
the difference between these two. Sometimes they all align. I can tell you, uh, I posted like two days ago something about um, it was a visualization of a whale in in the ocean and um, how vessels are the the traffic is kind of impacting the 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 whale. So that went super crazy viral, and now. Like retrospectively, I can tell you that uh, because it makes sense to non-technical people as well. Like you can see the whale, uh, the, the the swimming pattern of the whale, and you don't need to be the other scientist. They're just like um, it seems that the whale is impacted by uh, the vessels and the traffic. It's probably getting a little bit uh, sometimes uh, nervous uh, and just swims uh, frantically between these uh, vessels, and um, it, it makes sense, right? So. Then you would have the other people that are more expert. They just want to, you know, know deeper about it. They asking for the data set, the hypothesis, how these are collected. The, the what is the other sample data? Can we, um, you know, compare and contrast and see if that's normal? Is it something that you will see the whales without these sort of uh, uh, distractions? And that's totally a different kind of uh, conversation. So. I can tell you that this is the reality of what I'm seeing right now. But in terms of tech and innovations, if I want to just give you a little bit of um, about the interaction piece, I would say uh, they're mostly uh, um, thinking about um, some tech that are uh, affecting people's lives directly. And it's very clear. So if there is a robot that is helping, uh, for example, a senior, or, or or somebody is disabled, that is something interesting for people to understand how it was you know, made and how it is changing somebody's life and what is the future uh, for that uh, product. And like how drones are going to change um, the, 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 the way that we might, um, you know, send our, send or receive our packages, um, things like that, that have a little bit of, uh, tangible outcomes um, versus that sometimes I'm interested into meta releasing their free, um, uh, you know, uh, giga size language model recently, but it will not get as much attention in the world. So that's the reality. So you, you cannot just literally understand from there uh, what AI um, experts or maybe uh, senior professionals are excited about. It's sometimes difficult to use the analytics on LinkedIn as well. Unfortunately, I guess that is also something that they are doing on purpose to make sure that the data and, and the analytics are not uh, very clear to, to make it, keep it a little bit vague and um, uh, to make sure that there isn't huge commercial use of the data, which makes it difficult for us to have deeper. There are so many really interesting trends that you're touching on there, Steve. A couple of them just sort of leap out at me. Uh, I've been thinking recently a lot about the ways in which AI are displacing quite a few industries and in fact, like a few that are quite surprising. For a little while there, it looked like the manufacturing industries were going to be displaced, obviously, by autonomous robotic systems. And then it was that um, white collar workers were likely to be displaced where the work that they're doing is repetitive and automatable. But now more recently, we've seen that even the creative industries are not immune to this kind of displacement either with, as you say, the, the potential release of Meta's large language model to follow up on 
releases like GPT-2 and GPT-3, which were already, I think, putting the fear of God in a lot of journalists. And even more recently, DALI, the model, which is now a lot of really interesting outputs demonstrating the creative capabilities of AI systems. So yeah, I wonder if, um, if you're seeing a lot of positive sentiment, negative sentiment, how are different people reacting to these, these changes that you're seeing? Yeah, I'm also fascinated about uh, things like, um, you know, technological advances. And I, as, a, as a technology kind of enthusiast, I'm always all in for, you know, more, better, faster. Uh, but it's like you, you, you would sometimes get the reality from your connections and followers. They, they would pick up some uh, uh, negative aspe- aspects of any usage of these uh, technologies. Like, for example, uh, Dolly 2, which you mentioned, just like, it is great. It is awesome. I loved it. And at the same time, it might look very scary, just generating something super visually, uh, I guess, impressive and realistic uh, from a huge data set. But at the same time, like uh, people are talking about, um, you know, sometimes um, like copyright, they just think about like where these uh, images are sourced and um, are they getting um, anything back from all these generated images? You know, they're not coming from nowhere. It's like if you uh, if you're using a huge data set of images from somewhere, um, are they all non-copyright, free-to-use uh, uh, data? And also, it kind of ties back to my conversations about diversity and bias. A lot of these digital footprints are already generated by people that are dominating this industry. Like, um, for example, the graphics or the uh, if they're AI engineers or if they, they are generated by anyone who uh, who is right now have access to the internet. But the problem is, and then uh, that might actually reflect the idea or the understanding of these people. So I'm going to give you an example. Like um, there, there is a, um, I guess, uh, a research uh, asking, um, I think high school students draw scientists and each year, there's a difference between the gender, which is like, um, like usually uh, the drawing of scientists would kind of be squid to, towards uh, men and, and more of male, which means that uh, the understanding of the high school students is that probably the, um, you know, uh, a good scientist is going to be a male scientist. So imagine if that sort of understanding is kind of um, pushed in through uh, the data, the, the image, the, the drawings to these models, then these models are not, um, you know, they're not as smart to understand that uh, they need to have a better distribution of, um, you know, the population in what they're generating. So if you ask Dolly, for example, uh, you know, can you generate me a nurse in front of the water? I mean, I haven't done it, so don't don't quote me on that. But it's probably going to be a female. Um, and if you ask for a doctor, it might be a male. I I I don't know hundred percent, but that is the assumption of like because the the data is uh, kind of more uh, skewed towards these gender biases. So 
as much as I'm seeing a lot of enthusiasts and, and I'm so enthusiastic about generative images and deep fakes, we all see some of these negative aspects as well. And picking up on that, Steve, when I was in the States recently, I attended uh, South by Southwest and there was a very big discussion across the conference and the tech stream around data as pollution. So the, the misleading and the negative elements of too much data that can, on one hand, inform and generate insights, but on the other hand, can mislead. So, you know, in the last 10 years, has the promise of access to data and data availability been realised? Or And what are the risks right now when we think about, you know, this misleading era that we're in? That's a great point, Chrissy. Like, um, Recently, uh, Professor Andrewing started a conversation about model-centric ver- versus the, um, I guess, data-centric approach. And the, the conversation is about, I'm going to just give you a gist of it, but essentially it means that uh, should we just get a lot of data, whatever data that is possible from wherever is possible, and then collect a huge amount of these data and then throw it into algorithm and try to just focus on the algorithm itself to be able to, uh, you know, make a better decision and to be able to uh, have a more accurate outcome? Or should we just step back and kind of um, stay in the data preparation, data uh, processing and data gathering step in order to make sure that we have a better data and then not bothering too much about the algorithm? And it seems that Based on the research and based on uh, the the outcomes of these sort of um, experimentations, the data centric approach in many cases uh, generates a better or similar outcome to uh, the the model centric approach, and essentially that just means that we already know it, but that just um, amplifies the the our understanding of garbage in garbage out. So it doesn't mean that you you can just get whatever data is possible and put it together and and um, the noise and the pollution and w- whatever um, we can get our hands on can somehow add value. It, as much as we would love to uh, accumulate more data and definitely that would bring different um, you know features and different understandings, that might actually bring more noise to the um, to the decisions. So um, I totally agree. Like it seems that uh, now the community is coming to the senses that um, maybe not having more data is always the best uh, way to tackle the problems. Maybe even we need to have less data. Maybe uh, it's better to have less high quality data rather than a lot of low quality data. That that is the where is the trade off? That is the complexity. Like. I can tell you like some of these, um, you know, uh, companies like Google, Amazon and, and uh, Facebook, they have access to uh, probably, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know how much data they have, but it's definitely, it's, it's huge. And that might be able to kind of generalize the understanding or over this, some noises that is in there. And it might be difficult for us to literally go through them to, um, you know, to, to be able to uh, get rid of the noise and pollution, maybe, maybe there, there is a way to do it. But uh, what I'm saying here, uh, I guess for the 
the most cases, uh, I would even go forward and say maybe 80% of the cases right now, I, I would say that let, let's have a proper, I guess, processing, auditing. Let's have a proper understanding of, um, you know, uh, even uh, labeling and tagging and, and best practices before even starting the models. It's such an interesting discussion, the data-centric versus model-centric. One that you talk about, Andrew Ang, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Probably not. Apologies, Andrew. The idea is that you want to improve the performance of your system. The obvious question when you, when you shift focus back to the data-centric view is, what does performance mean in that sense? So where you have a data, you have a data set, the data scientist or practitioner usually would like to just assume that that data set represents the world. And then our job is to extract patterns from that data set and to build something that does that in an automated way, in a useful way, using a variety of different modeling techniques and so forth. And the only way that you can see if that system that you've built is performant is with respect to the data that you have. So you often will hold out some data from training while you build and train your model and then you can test to see is it doing well by then applying that model back to that data that you held back to begin with. But that data obviously is a part of the, you know, the broader data set, the data stream, if you like, that is being fed from some system in the world. What do we mean when we say it's better, it's going to perform better if it's got different data as you just mentioned, um, the, the classic way of understanding of the performance is the accuracy and, uh, you know, all the stuff that we already know, uh, the confusion metrics and ROC, and um, I, I'm not going to, into technical part of it, but that's what we know right now as a, as a scientist or as a, uh, as a data scientist to check the accuracy of the model. But I, I guess right now, in a lot of practical cases, we are using the MLOps and ModelOps sort of, I guess, mechanism to have a quicker way to deploy the models, understanding the outcomes by putting it in production and having a sort of an automated maybe um, feedback loop to, um, to have a better model and, and make um, you know, the iteration quicker. I, I would say um, it, it used to be um, uh, sort of like, um, you know, you, you have to do it in batches and, and check the, the accuracy uh, in some time and then um, send the feedback to, to the team to be able to understand where and how to adjust the model. But the market and industry is kind of moving away from that and becoming more automated. What I'm seeing is that uh, business is now driving the accuracy you always need to have some sort of way to, to have some sort of experimenting and checking the accuracy in the lab, in the dev team. But at the end of the day, there would be a quick reality check by um, using the MLOps um, um, and, and following the, the MLOps process. So another really interesting conversation we had recently was with uh, Ed Santow, who is the Human Rights Commissioner in Australia. And we were talking with him about systems which are, in particular, things like facial recognition systems, AI-driven facial recognition systems, which he, he was arguing we need to have greater restrictions around the use of those kinds of systems because they are, um, they are not as accurate 
with respect to some demographics of individuals across a population. For example, famously, less performant typically on the very young and the very old, less able to identify faces accurately, and also less accurate on people with darker complexion, skin tones. And his argument was that we need to make sure that our AI systems are not underperforming where that is discriminatory. And so for me, there's a question I'm trying to find my way to, which has to do with what you think is the right balance between fairness and accuracy so that a system might be accurate and in its exquisite accuracy, we might decide that the outcome that it's promulgating is not fair, whereas the other way around might also be true. A system that is perfectly fair might be one that is not as accurate. Where do you lie philosophically on the accuracy fairness trade-off? That's a great one. And I can actually um, tell you that that, that is beyond AI and, and data science. Like it, this is, uh, as you just mentioned, it, it is a, uh, a philosophical sort of a conversation about the, the fairness, the equality and justice and well, where that lies, you know, is it like to, to give everyone $10, is it, is it justice? Is it uh, equality? Is it fair to, to give the poor all the money and get it from uh, the, the, the rich? Is it fair? That, that is it justice? Like that's exactly uh, the conversation that we might have in any other, I guess, areas. And for the AI, I would say the complexity grows when the AI is going to make decisions that impacts our lives heavily. Imagine like it, it, uh, it makes decision that, for example, if you are going to get access to any services, maybe loans, maybe um, getting accepted at university or um, having access to something that might impact your life. And that, that's where I guess the fairness will kind of jump in um, and the accuracy doesn't mean anything because even if it is 99.99% accurate, if it is ruining your life forever, it's one person's life ruined forever. And that's just not going to be fair. If you, even if you say that ah, it's, it's good for the rest of the world, I mean, you, you, you're going to be the casualty of the great uh, technology and just be happy with that. I, I can just... Um, not agree with that particular use case, even though it's very, very, very accurate. And then what should we do here? Like um, one way just like to, you know, downsize and, and go back to the, the normal process of having human in to, to do all the work. Or maybe there's a better way to, to have a combination of the two, right? Like uh, to, to be able to make most of the decisions by AI and audited by human being, whatever they're is a way to understand the risk. Maybe there is a way to um, have the feedback from people that are, they, they feel that they're impacted, right? So every now and then I receive like a flag from, um, let's say social media algorithms, let's say Twitter tells me that uh, your, your content is, let's say, I don't know, too commercial or blah, whatever. And I'm just like, I can see that it is not. There are keywords that has been picked up by that algorithm and they usually would directly go forward and do some actions like either take it down or restrict it or whatever they, they feel it's necessary. So what happens there, they also have a way for you to ask for a second look. And that's where 
I think there is a there is a way to um, kind of make that algorithm to stay still fair because you can appeal to a human being, and if it the second look still you know has the same judgment, then by all means that's um, that's fine. So, Steve, part of your response, I think, to the complexity uh, that you're describing now was to f- start AI for Diversity, which is a not-for-profit global initiative that engages and educates diverse communities about AI for benefit of society. Could you share with us what your mission and goal is, what your vision is for this initiative, and how it will start to address some of these issues that we've been talking about? That is very close to my heart, Chrissy. I have seen that a lot of initiatives coming from around the world, talking about diversity and inclusion in different uh, industries in tech, AI, and other industries. And it seems that generally uh, people agree that um, inclusion and diversity is good. Uh, but what does it mean for specifically for AI? As we talked about, it seems that AI would have uh, a little bit um, I guess, uh, um, more impact than normal industries in people's life, just because of the way it amplifies, the way it scales. It seems that there is more um, need for uh, understanding of what can go wrong there because the impact is huge. And in order to think about it, we need to have the diversity because what we don't know, we don't know. Like literally, if I'm the only person making decisions about how this AI is going to be built to, to I guess, to, to be fair to everyone. How do I know that I have the, all the experience, knowledge, and, and um, understanding of what can go wrong? It's one human being. That is what is important. Like we need to bring different understandings, different experiences. And at the end of the day, the human being is making this AI. They are putting their own biases by making decisions about the data that is feeding in from the data processing, from the way that model is being built, from the ways that they are training and testing the algorithm. Like all of these little steps, there are thousands of different ways of doing it. And who makes that decision that this should be done this particular way? Even, you know, the best data scientists from one university, they can be biased just because of being trained by one professor. It can go in many different ways. Like um, gender diversity is very important. There are lots of communities working on that. But then there are lots of other ways to think about diversity, like cultural background, socioeconomical background, age. And that's where AI for diversity starts. I'm coming from diverse background. My background an immigrant from Middle East. So I understand that that is also something that we need to understand that like having people from different cultural background are also needed in decision-making, even in audit, in the testing, that you need the data into the platforms. So that's where I thought, all right, I would like to look at this problem a little bit, uh, I guess, wider and bigger than solely uh, focusing on one aspect. And around six months ago or seven months ago, I uh, sort of uh, announced this initiative on social media. And I I was, um, I guess, super shocked by the response. 
this project now has more than 300,000 uh, followers on social media, and people are so excited about the mission and the vision. And I also shared, uh, you know, um, um, a post about, um, you know, asking people to volunteer. And that, that particular one got around 10,000 response. We got 10,000 people registered from different parts of the world, different, um, you know, experience. Some of them are uh, even like I'm, I'm uh, so humble and, and um, it's my pleasure to working with them in, in any capacity. There are professors from Harvard in there. It's like a, a partner from, um, you know, these big, big consultancy firms. There are um, senior data scientists from uh, FANG and all these uh, awesome individuals are kind of buying into the vision of this platform. It is still early days for that uh, project. We are still figuring out exactly how this, I guess, uh, a large entity uh, is going to go forward. We're talking to a lot of people and you're generating some content. So it is early days. I hope that uh, whoever is listening to this, if you're excited about the same mission and vision, please reach out. Uh, there are lots of ways that you can add value and we're looking forward to, to work with everyone um, a, in any part of the world with any experience, even if it's not directly related to AI. That's so exciting, Steve. What a massive movement in a very short period of time. What are people really engaging with, you know, collaborating across borders with each other? I know you also run another initiative called Hackmakers. Um, keen to know whether or not the, those two initiatives are overlapping and how that is working. And uh, it would be great to hear what's happening within the community and, and, and how people are collaborating. Yeah, for AI for Diversity, it's, uh, the understanding is to educate people and uh, sort of to bring some networking opportunities to the ones that are specifically are underrepresented groups in different societies, whatever is the reason. Uh, we want to make sure that they, they come along in the journey. They understand what is AI, how it will impact their lives, and what if they are impacted by a decision that they want to appeal, how can they understand that um, you know something is wrong, where to look for, how to get the help. Like this is the, the, one of the major reasons that AI for diversity exists. Part of that is educational. People want to learn about the introductions, like what is machine learning, what is um, AI, what is data science, and uh, um, like what are the bits and pieces that uh, um, make a model become accurate. And, and, you know, these are the fundamentals that we believe that everybody needs to know in order to defend the rights. And um, that's more of the vision that we have for AI for diversity. Uh, definitely, we would have some advanced courses. We would help also the uh, member of the boards and executives down the track because they are making decisions like many, many different aspects that we are thinking, even um, how to um, uh, measure the diversity in an organization, maybe uh, thinking about generating some data sets uh, that are more diverse using our own um, you know, uh, followers and members. To, to be able to um, check the, the quality and uh, the result of some of the algorithms. And these are like all down the track are interesting pieces. 
Um, some of the research might be funded by this project. We, uh, we were fortunate to, you know, uh, we have been contacted by uh, some governments in different countries, like at least three governments contacted us to have MOU and have like sort of a, uh, a relationship to uh, understand how they can collaborate and, and amplify the work. I'm going to um, go to uh, these countries uh, starting from October this year. I'm just super excited. I cannot announce it yet because it's not public and it, uh, we will need to understand what, what happens and what, what is the, uh, I guess, uh, the PR coming out of those discussions. But uh, we, we also are working with uh, the, the tech, we, with the big tech. I had a conversation with Microsoft, Google, and um, Oracle. They all... Uh, on board with the vision, and they are more than happy to um, to you know weigh in um, in certain ways. So this is just the beginning, but we can see that the uh, I guess the roadmap seems to uh, be more comprehensive than uh, just one aspect, like um, literally making videos or just generating some educational content. For the hack maker itself. Hackmakers is about competitions, online competitions, uh, global online competitions that are mostly uh, for impact, for some social impact. And we had the, the latest one, which was the World Innovation Day, collaborating with um, UN, having like um, uh, three ministers from uh, different countries speaking in the event and um, having more than 3,000 um, participants from all over the world. That is sort of what we are thinking about Hackmakers. It is sort of a project that um, um, will, will kind of bring um, whoever wants to have an impact by generating some sort of a technology, either software or a model or, or um, uh, anything that, that can be um, you know, uh, done during the, the 48 hours of the hackathon. And uh, I've seen a lot of great um, outcomes by having a diverse team um, coming together from different parts of the world. Uh, and that's what we are going to push forward. I read amongst some of the literature that's published by AI for Diversity that the, you know, the founding ethos, if you like, is that AI makers need to be from diverse backgrounds in order to provide equal opportunities for everyone. What does, what does diverse backgrounds mean in that context? You say you are from a diverse background. What does it mean? And why is it important in AI? AI is like a tool that has a huge impact into the society because of the way that it scales, the way that it can be used. It will be sort of uh, something that is uh, more, I guess, the, the impact is more severe if something goes wrong. And in order to prevent that, we need to be more cautious. We need to have a lot more, uh, I guess, emphasis on um, the way that it is made, the way that it is tested, and how this whole process of making AI end-to-end -end is being um, monitored. That is a given. But then the problem is that, um, so now, how this can happen? Is it... Um, by only having great educated individuals involved in making this um, AI, or there are different 
um, aspects that we need to consider. And we believe, and it is a, probably right now a common sense, but still we are advocating for that. We believe that you need to have a different background to be able to understand and comprehend what can go wrong in terms of the decision-making. And that essentially means that if we are all coming from same background in terms of education, uh, maybe cultural background, socioeconomic background, um, maybe uh, even um, race, skin color, uh, gender, wh whatever aspects that um, we can think about would impact our way of thinking about a particular topic. And uh, that's the, where the complexity arises, because then you can have billions of uh, combination. Like li literally, each one of us have a different experience in our lives, and we are all different from each other. Like human beings are different. Like this is like a fingerprint. But what we can do here, we might be able to to find some sort of um, common um, characteristics among these people to be able to have a better um, uh, distribution of uh, these decision makers. It can uh, become a little bit complex in terms of uh, the, the logistics. How can we have uh, a literally the most diverse team um, of 10 people, let's say? Like, how can we do that? Like, can, is it like uh, 20 enough? What, what is the number? What is the diversity for that? small group means. But at the end of the day, um, we need to make sure that we bring as much as people um, and include as much as uh, different experience as possible in terms of the, the uh, decision making for some AI algorithms that would impact uh, more people. It is, if it is global, then you need to have a global audience. And that's where, I guess, um, things are more interesting and important. If the, the AI algorithm is some internal use that will affect maybe 20 to 100 people, that might be something that we can kind of overlook. But for an algorithm that in a country, maybe in an organization, will, will make decisions for everyone, not something you can easily, you know, get over by just looking for the, the best of technical individuals in the room. I guess AI for diversity wants to make sure that apart from AI makers, the ones that are impacted also understand what is AI. Because at the end of the day, you will not be able to literally have everyone um, in the room when you're making the AI. So now you need to have some people testing it. Maybe that's where uh, the AI for diversity can help. Maybe you can have 2,000 people testing your AI. If you can not have 2,000 people sitting in the room making the AI, they, they might be able to, before putting in for production, give it a try. And, and there's a still uh, a chance for things to go wrong. That's where you need the human in the loop. You need to have a way to uh, get the feedback from the audience and to, to have someone to look into it. But it's always, I guess, minimizing the risk. Fascinating, Steve. And just finally, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Harvard Business Review 
published a paper 10 years ago that said that data science was the sexiest job of the 21st century. And so many of us since then who zoned out during statistics at uni, probably kicking ourselves because I understand that Australia needs more than 160,000 data scientists to achieve its vision for um, the Australian data strategy by 2030. So where are all these people going to come from? Which industries? How is this data science pipeline going to grow to realise these opportunities uh, for for society? Yeah, I think uh, that that particular um, uh, Harvard Business Review article was uh, pretty much the uh, the time that I got interested into data science. It it caught my eyes as it probably caught everybody else's eyes at that point where we were doing some stuff with data, but we didn't know what to call it. But um, uh, anyway, right now I can see that the general public are kind of excited and interested about AI in general, but there are like two problems. One is that how can we um, have that many people trained in a short time uh, the, the second problem which is uh, also important is like how can we make sure that they are coming from diverse background that is also something that we need to understand i guess history uk used to be the forefront of ai around world war ii right and then back then i i don't know if it was used to be called ai i wasn't there but it's still something that they were doing was very similar to ai and uh, it was more a female dominant uh, uh, kind of industry. The ENIAC um, sort of programmers were mostly females. And then sort of it turned quickly to become a male dominant, right? So um, that is something that we need to understand. How can we reverse it back? Not necessarily to, to be, make it female dominant, but also to, to understand how it can be more diverse from different uh, different aspects. For specifically for Australia to be in a very very interesting position to have a diverse, I guess, uh, community of individuals, immigrants coming from different part of the world. Uh, they all identify as Australians, and um, they are all very smart, intellectual, um, uh, intelligent people. That they. Um, they're more than happy to step up and reskill, upskill to be able to add value to the AI industry. So that's that's something that I think we need to uh, think about. Uh, specifically, uh, education needs to think about how can we make this AI look much more interesting uh, for different genders as well, because um, historically. Uh, it became a male dominant. As I said, that the uh, the drawing of the scientists uh, became um, 80, 90 percent male scientists done by high school students. So, so that's the understanding of high school students that a scientist of a, a, is a male probably, or a good scientist will be a male, and that's not what we would like to continue. It, it is it is ongoing. I guess, uh, situation that we are addressing. Um, but if we by 2030, we're, we're going to have that many data scientists, probably we need to act quicker. The other way, um, I guess, uh, is to my understanding of the future of data science is that uh, probably 
there would be a lot of citizen data scientists. So whoever is doing whatever job they're doing, they would have uh, some sort of understanding of data science that they can be able to apply that understanding without uh, literally uh, being trained as a data scientist. So there would be a lot of tools and applications and uh, automated uh, platforms that would help um, people uh, with different backgrounds to be able to do their own data science jobs without, you know, making any tickets for the data science team. And um, that's, that would be probably the way to, to be able to scale very quickly rather than um, having everyone uh, jumping into IT course, uh, becoming a data scientist. I guess the business understanding for a data science, um, um, through my experience, I found the business understanding is the most important aspect for a data scientist, apart from the technical aspects, which is uh, important, but in the second, um, I, I guess, uh, priority. And um, yeah, I would say that the that would become uh, the dominant factor. Everybody learning any sort of science in any field would learn programming, would learn a little bit of, I mean, they're already learning statistics and programming and uh, they would probably know how to do their own, their own little uh, data science project um, as well. A great call to action for all of you aspiring data scientists, general purpose scientists, biologists, physicists, everybody out there gets stuck in. Uh, I think there's um, it's a bright future that we have ahead of us where more people are coming into those fields of a variety of different backgrounds. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us on The Foil. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, we're going to be following closely your uh, amazing work at AI for Diversity and at Hackmakers and at every other venture that you, uh, you play your hand at. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thanks, Chrissy and Adam. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.